Amen. Amen. All right, kiddos, before you guys are dismissed, I want you to come up front real quick. So where are all the kids at? Kiddos, come on up. I know there's more than just you, Finley, but thanks for being the trendsetter. You're awesome. So y'all come up right here. So if you guys don't know, uh, which you should, today's Father's or Mother's Day. Oops, sorry. <laughs> Narcissism just coming out of me. Uh, so today's Mother's Day. So what I want to do, if you want to, you don't have to, but I want you guys to take a moment uh, and tell everybody why you love your mommy. Anybody want to go first? Why do you love your mommy? Anybody? Mommies are waiting. I'll give you a second to think about it because we also polled the preschoolers that are in there, and here's some of their answers. Um, Josiah said, I love mommy because she naps with me. That's pretty good, right? Anybody ready? All right, I'll keep going. Um, Carol Lee says, when she makes me breakfast. That's why she loves her mommy. Josie, do you want to give an answer why you love your mommy? Maybe. You don't have to say it in the microphone. What do you think? Yeah, because she lets you take the pipe cleaners into the church. <laughs> Moms are awesome. Anybody? Why do you love your mommy? No, no, Grady? <laughs> All right, I'll keep reading. Y'all keep thinking. Uh, this is turning out exactly like I thought it would. Um, June says she loves mommy because she loves mommy. That's a good answer. Just because, Right? Uh, Sammy and Jack said they love their mommy because she plays with them. That's very sweet. Uh, Mary London says when she plays I Spy with me in the car. <laughs> oh, sweet. That's just a parent hack to keep them from talking, but just kidding. Anybody? You ready? Auburn, there we go. Why do you love your mommy? Because she takes care of and cares for you? That's right. Anybody else? No? You at least want to say, I love you, Mommy? Cool. All right. <laughs> you guys are dismissed. Y'all go have fun. Love you, kiddos. Um, hey, since we're, yeah. I know we don't normally do this, but this is Mother's Day. Um, I know the kids are embarrassed. Does anybody want to give a public shout-out to their mom if they're here? Does anybody want to do that? No? Mom, where's my mom? Happy Mother's Do you want me to read, you, read the poem for you? <laughs> I wrote my mom a poem, uh, but it was just between, between us. It was, I presented it to her last night. It was great, but uh, we'll, just, we'll keep that between us. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Hebrews with me. Is where we're going to be. I'm glad you guys are here with us. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, I know we're in this smaller room, uh, which we're typically here over the summer, which is just great. Uh, it's a little bit more intimate and uh, truthfully less set up. So that's why we're in here. Um, so Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be 17 verse 22. Just a few quick verses because it is Mother's Day. Uh, I want to get you guys out so you can go ahead and if, if, if you need to plan what you're going to do for your mom during the sermon, that's okay too. <laughs> just do something. Um, but, but yes, yeah, so I, I want to pick on this 17 through 22 
uh, because there's a really massive part in this text, and I heard a quote this week that, that set this up for me. Alistair Begg said, um, the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing, right? So when you're looking at Scripture, when you're studying the Bible, just think it through these lenses, that the main thing is the plain, the most obvious thing, and at the same time, the plain thing is the main thing. And here's why this stuck out for me in this idea of faith. Because if we're not careful, we take this idea of faith and we make it this big, hard, kind of like nuanced thing to comprehend, to do, and, and we define it, and then we redefine it, and then we redefine it, and, and we don't really get to what faith is, what it actually does in our life. And so this morning, as we've been looking through Old Testament heroes, uh, we're going to get to this main thing, plain thing. Here's what we can do today to start walking, applying, and living out the faith that's within us. Uh, so I just, I just love this text um, and so let's pick it up, Hebrews 11, we're going to read 17 through 22, uh, but I want us to really focus in on the main thing, the plain thing, which is verse 19. Hebrews 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from, even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, would, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones." So look with me one more time at verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So that's where I want to zoom in this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this time. Uh, we're so grateful for the mothers that you've blessed us with. Uh, Father, they're so selfless. They're so uh, caring. They're so loving. And we're grateful for that. And so, Father, as we get, dive into Hebrews, would you illuminate this text to our hearts? Would uh, you get rid of the distractions and let us just focus in on what faith looks like? And where do we put our faith? Where do we place our faith? Father, would this not just be a, a theoretical conversation this morning, Father, but would we leave with tangible steps of what to do to grow in our faith? Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, we, Stephen mentioned this last week, and we're going to keep saying this over and over again. We've got to understand why faith was being written, why this subject was being considered for the people in this time. Because as we talked about, this is a house church in Rome uh, that has kind of coming out of the first wave of persecution and is about to go into severe persecution, martyrdom. Uh, Nero is going to go crazy on these guys. He's going to use humans as light posts, set them on fire so the streets of Rome would be lit with these Christians that this all author is writing to. So of course their faith would be dwindling a little bit because they see an intense persecution coming their way. And so he's writing to them to understand, hey, grow in faith, be grown in faith, walk in faith, step out in faith. And so we've stopped every week just to address what faith really is. And so if you look up at verse 1, Hebrews 11.1 1 gives a very crystal clear definition. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. 
It's the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we talked about the last couple weeks, really, as we've been in Hebrews 11, that faith is also a noun and a verb at the same time. So the subject of our faith is God and God alone. That is the noun of faith. That's where we place our faith. That's where we put our hope, where we put our confidence is in God. But faith also requires an action, that we can't say we have faith and not do anything with it. Else that would be us just being a fraud, basically. So, so we see clearly here that faith is both a noun and a verb. It's, it's a subject, it's a thing, but it's also clearly an action. But this begs the question, where does faith come from? And this is where uh, we just have to continually bring this up every single time. Uh, God gives us faith primarily through hearing. But God gives us faith, and it's primarily through hearing. And this is where it comes from. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no man can boast. So faith comes through hearing and faith is also a gift. Faith is given to us by God. But but it's given to us as a muscle. It's something that needs to be flexed. It's something that needs to be tested. It's something that needs to be grown within us. And that's one of the main themes we're going to see this morning. So uh, this text, I mean, it is a sermon. Hebrews is basically a sermon that was written down and given to the people of God in Rome. And because of that, the text really breaks out quite nicely. We'll see uh, verses 17 and 18 that there's a test that Abraham walks through. And then we'll focus in on verse 19, uh, and it's the focal text of what we'll see this morning. Uh, And then lastly, if we have time, we'll see what the fruit of faith looks like in verses 20 through 22. So with that kind of caveat being set, let's look again at verse 17. By faith, Abraham was tested. By faith, Abraham was tested. Now, now that word might kind of strike you a little wrong. Like, why would God test Abraham? Like, like, why is God doing this? What is the point of testing? That seems almost manipulative. That might seem mean or crazy. Why would God test us? I thought God wasn't supposed to tempt us, but he can test us. What does all this look like? And so, uh, with that being said, James chapter 1 explains this perfectly. James 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So consider it joy when you go through these seasons of testing, when your faith gets tested, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or another word for that is endurance. And let your steadfastness or endurance have its full effect, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So this idea of the testing of faith is what's good and right for us. But what's going to grow our faith if not being tested? What's going to grow our faith if not for uh, going through hard things? And for those that work out or run, we understand this. When you exercise, you do hard things so that you can grow. So the purpose of God leading us through hard seasons, testing our faith, is not because he's a bully in the sky. It's what's best for us to produce endurance in us to run the race completely. 
So when we start putting these lenses on and then we can look back at our life, we can see some of the hardest seasons of our life were actually for our good, were actually for our benefit. That God led us through those seasons. He tested us in our faith, not because he was a bully, but because he wanted us to endure. He wanted us to have a steadfastness, love, and faith in him. So when we kind of get these lenses on and we can look back in our life, we can look at things going on around us, things become a little bit more clear for us. One, because the Bible tells us that faith is not easy, that, that faith is not natural for us. If God would not give us the faith to believe, we would not believe. So we have to see, first and foremost, that faith is a gift. It is a very difficult thing for us to walk into. And Can I just be honest, and I've said this to a few of you in this room, you know the hardest part of faith is waiting for God to show up, right? I mean, the hardest part of faith is waiting. It's waiting for God to make the situation perfect. It's waiting for him to draw us to a climax. It's waiting for him to do what we think he should do, but his timing is never our timing. And with that, we see that faith is not easy, but it's also how we are grown. Now, now you take this out of kind of theoretical. Let's put boots on the ground. Uh, Anyone love Peter from the Bible? I mean, Peter's just my guy. I know Peter had to have my same personality type. We're both like ready, fire, aim kind of personalities where we get it wrong and we have to backtrack real quick and then make things right. And then we're like, okay, I'm never going to do that again. And then we do it again and we have to backtrack. And so here's what we were talking about. Uh, Peter steps out of the boat, walks on water, right? Legitness. He's doing it. He's walking towards Jesus. And then he starts to get a little bit self-confident. He starts to doubt a little bit and he goes down. But he steps out in faith, he walks out of the boat, walks on water towards Jesus. So then we fast forward in the life of Peter. When Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? They're kind of, oh, he's this, oh, he's that, he's a prophet. And he looks at Peter, who do you say that I am? And out of the 12 disciples, Peter gets it right. You're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And what does Jesus say? That flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. That that is a gift, that is the faith that's in you. The same faith that got you to step out of the boat and follow me is the same faith that has revealed to you who I am. And then you fast forward that later, and what does Peter do? He denies Christ three times right on the night of his death. So Peter's getting it right, and then he gets it wrong. And then you fast forward a little bit later, and Peter is the one that establishes the church that why we are gathered today is can link back to Peter and Pentecost, preaching the gospel boldly. So Peter gets it, he's walking in faith, and then what happens? He has to get reprimanded by Paul because he's teaching a doctrine contrary to the gospel, that he's favoriting the Jews over the Gentiles. And we kind of look at Peter, this, this is faith. We step out on faith, we walk in faith, we get to that next level, and then we trip up and fall. And then the Lord graciously picks us up and we start walking. Our faith gets tested. Sometimes we make it. Sometimes we trip and fall. The Lord graciously picks us up and then we keep going. This is the rhythm of faith. And so we see here that Abraham's faith was tested. We'll look back at verse 17. And he offered up Isaac. Now, for the life of me, I don't know why I'm preaching this on Mother's Day. Right, like this is just the strangest text. Maybe we should call it audible and just said, Mother, you're awesome. Let's preach about that. No, instead, I'm going to talk about the potential murder of a son. Here we are. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Now, Hebrews 6, we talked about this back in January. So, some of this might seem uh, repetitive if you're with us in January, but he offered up 
Isaac. This is one of the most mind-blowing texts in all of Scripture for me. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Genesis 12. I just want to kind of see how this story unfolds, and then I just want us to read as a church Genesis 22. There's no point in me trying to paraphrase this. The Bible is perfect, so we're just going to read it together. So go back to Genesis 12. We'll see how Abraham's faith was tested by offering up Isaac, his only son. So we're going to pick it up in Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Now, just remember, Abraham at this point is 75 years young. I'm doing that for the older ones in the congregation. 75 years young. Genesis 12 too. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So God tells Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. Out of you is going to come a great nation. How does that happen if you don't have kids? So this is where the promise of kids begin. Now flip over to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, this is 25 years later. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your offspring. It's going to happen, Abraham. Abraham's already 75. That course has already ran its schedule. Get to Genesis 21 when he is 101 years old. And we see Isaac is born. Genesis 21, we're going to pick it up in verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded. Verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old. Now flip over to Genesis 22, because this is where it just gets crazy. Al Mohler says that Genesis 22 is one of the most important and infamous passages in all of Scripture. This chapter has so much for us to learn. So I'm just going to read 1 through 14 and throw in some commentaries throughout this. Because this is what the author of Hebrews is writing, referring to, going back to. Genesis 22, we'll pick it up in verse 1. After these things, primarily the birth of Isaac, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkeys, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about faith is instant obedience, that there's no delayed obedience. When God calls, we act. When God commands, we move. And we see this modeled perfectly through the life of Abraham. Abraham here I am. God says, take your only son, and he gets up early in the morning to do so. No delaying coming from Abraham. God spoke, Abraham did. But we have to stop and remember, as Dylan talked through Leviticus last August, what a burnt offering is. Right? What is a burnt offering? An animal is slain, his blood is drained, and his carcass is burned. So what was the instant obedience for Abraham? Abraham, go up here and make your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Scripture tells us, a burnt offering. 
And he rose. And he did it instantly. Let's go. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, we talked about this in January, and this is a huge focal point for this text, that they're going to go over there, and I and the boy will come back to you. Now, wait a second. I thought Abraham was going to go out there and slay his son as a burnt offering because that's what God had commanded. But how did he have the faith to say, I'm going to come back to you? Did Abraham actually intend on carrying out what God had asked him to do? Did actually, Abraham actually walk in faith to do what God had commanded? So let's keep reading. We'll see. Verse 6. And Abraham took the word and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hands, a fire and the knife, so they both went together. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He just have to stop and go, Did Abraham actually believe that? Did Abraham actually believe that this was going to play out like he thought? Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now we just have to stop here to kind of get the moment that's happening, right? So Abraham and Isaac walk up there. They're there. They've got the knife. They've got the fire on the way up. Isaac's going, wait a second something's not right. You say we're doing a burnt offering. Where is the burnt offering? Now, there's a lot of debate here about how old Abraham and Isaac actually, or how old Isaac was, uh, but most scholars would agree that Isaac was around 13 or 14 years old. So you've got this man that's over 100 years old versus a kid that's 13 to 14, right? I don't know if you've seen a street fight between a 110-year-old and a 13-year-old, but I'm putting my money on the 13-year-old. So you have Isaac who willingly, willingly listened to his father. And this is a part of the faith story that doesn't get really talked about. That Isaac willingly was bound up and laid on the altar because he could outrun Abraham. He could have overpowered Abraham. He could have taken off. But Isaac had faith in Abraham because Abraham had faith in God. Parents, our kids are watching our faith. They're going to model after what they see take place in front of them. Isaac had faith in Abraham because Abraham had faith in God. So we see this taking place. The scene is here. Isaac is on the altar. The knife is in his hand. It starts to go up, and one of the commentators just wrote it eloquently. When he raised his trembling hand above the shuddering body of his son, it was because he learned the logic of faith. That Abraham learned the logic of faith. First, we see that God's word never fails. And second, it must be obeyed at all costs. So we start talking about the formulaic, what does faith actually do? Here are the two foundations that we see out of this text. First, that God's word never fails. Second, it must be obeyed at all costs. Now let's look at verse 11. But the angel said, of the Lord called, excuse me, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything, anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now look back at verse 11. Do you see those exclamation points? Abraham. Exclamation points. The angels from heaven are calling out to him. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, he was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham must have exhaled so much, went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering to his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now we have to see this idea. Why was Abraham being celebrated for the faith of this event? What was actually going on? What was happening? Which leads us into the third observation. That Abraham was giving back his promised gift, which is a son. Read with me at the rest of verse 17. And he who had received the promises was in, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Maybe here's a paraphrase way to understand that. By faith, Abraham, at the time of testing, offered up Isaac back to God. Acting in faith, he was ready to return the promised son, his only son. He had been received by him. And this after he'd already told him, your descendants shall come from Isaac. So what is happening here? Abraham understand that this Isaac was a gift from God, so whatever God wanted for his son, he had him. So much of our life would be fixed. It would be so much easier to walk in faith if we understood this one truth of Scripture, that nothing is ours to begin with. Everything is a gift from God that he's freely given us. So if we walk open-handed with literally everything, every possession, every blessing God has freely given us, that when God calls us to walk in faith, it's going to be a whole lot easier because we don't have a tight grip on anything because we trust him with everything. Everything was freely given to us. So when God calls for these things to be taken back from us, we give it right back because our faith is not in these things. It's in the Father alone. So we see this, that Abraham was just going to give him back. God, thank you for the years that you had given him for me, but he's yours. He's not mine. So I'm just going to give it back. But with all of this being said, how in the world, how in the world could Abraham do that? How in the world could Abraham walk up to this mountain and do what he was about to do? And that leads us to verse 19, the focal point of this text, because the author tells us explicitly how he did it. He considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which for figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is the main thing, the plain thing that we can apply today. How do we grow our faith? How do we walk in faith? How do we do this like Abraham? Well, the first thing is that we see he considered. He considered. Now, this is a means of calculating or computing. So, so this figuring is not necessarily a hunch. This is a calculation that's going place in Abraham's head. Abraham used logic to reason the situation out. He didn't indulge in faith without reason or blind faith. He was logical and almost mathematical in his reasoning. 
So when God said, go up there, offer your son, Abraham thought about it. He calculated it out in his mind and came to this unique conclusion. God said Abraham would have children as numerous as the stars and the sand, and Abraham believed that. So, therefore, the only explanation that was God had a purpose for slaying Isaac, and he would raise him from the dead. So the entire point of Abraham walking up and slaughtering his son was that Abraham had faith that if God said, my kids are going to outnumber the grains of sand, then he's going to raise them back from the dead. And so he got his stuff and he went. He thought, I mean, you just got to think about this, because when I first read this story and I saw it on the felt board in VBS when I was six and all those kind of stories, my, my mind automatically went to, man, Abraham was just trolling, right? Like he was just playing. He got the knife up. He's like, hey, God, do you see me? All right, where's that go to at? He had no actual intention of following it through. But the author of Hebrews says, no, that's hogwash. He had so much faith in the power of God that he was going to slaughter his son because God told him to. But he also knew that his children were going to outnumber the grains of sand. So the only logical conclusion, the consideration that Abraham considered and took place was that he was going to raise him from the dead. Now, that's faith. That is walking in faith that I just cannot comprehend. That he was so sure that God told him this, here's the promises that he's offered me, so the only logical conclusion is do what he said and he's going to raise him back. So when Abraham tells his servants at the bottom of the mountain that we will come back, it was going to be a resurrected Isaac. It was going to be Isaac that was slaughtered and resurrected for the glory of God. So he first considered but what did he consider? That God is able. That God is able. Again, look with me at verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. That God was able to even raise Isaac from the dead. Because he had faith, Abraham had faith in the promises of God. Abraham was going to have a nation. He knew that Isaac had to be resurrected. That even if he went through with the slaughtering of his only son, the promised son that he had waited for a century to have, he knew that Abraham, or that God was going to raise him from the dead, that God was able. And through this we see that Abraham passed God's test because he was committed to the promises of God and believed that God was able now, Abraham had another option. I mean, there was another option Abraham could have gone for. He could have said no. He could have said, God, that seems too crazy. Logically, I can't wrap my mind around that. Why would you bless me with this son? Just to 13, 14 years later, I have to go offer him as a burnt offering. Why would you give me a son? This cannot be true. So No. Answer is, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to rise early. I'm not going to walk up to the top of the mountain. I'm not going to take Isaac with me. I'm not going to cut the firewood. I'm not going to take the fire with me. None of this is happening, God. You are crazy. He could have doubted. But what would have been the fruit of the doubt? What would have been the fruit of the resistance? I can tell you it would not have been what we see in the rest of this text. Look with me at verse 20. 
Because of this test, because of what Abraham did, how he walked in faith, this is what took place. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, when dying, blessed, excuse me, by, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus to the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. I wish I had time to walk all through this text, but here's what I want us to see. None of this would happen if Abraham did not walk in faith. None of this would have taken place. The generational blessings that we see here, that Isaac invoked a future blessing on Jacob and Esau, what gave him the framework to walk in faith? His father, Abraham. And then we see the next generation of Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his son, Joseph. And we see how all of this plays out. And we're familiar with the story of Joseph. It's littered by walking in faith. And we can tease this out until today. We can walk all of this through until this moment right now. Praise God that Abraham was tested in his faith and he passed so that we can be here today. There are generational blessings that come by us walking in faith. So how do we apply this? What do we learn from Abraham? And it's, it's really simple. I mean, it's, it's not complicated It's really simple, but it's up to you to answer this, because I've been in pastoral work long enough to know we can give the right answers and mean none of it. So here is the question. Have you considered if God is truly able, or is he not? When God calls you to do something, is he able to carry that out, or is he not? Now we see from Abraham, why, why could he just instantly go, God said this, I'm going to rise early the next morning and go. Because his mind was made up. Before God ever told him what to do, Abraham's mind was already made up, God is able. He'd already considered, he knew the truth of God's word, God is able. So whatever God said, instant obedience is easy because his mind was already made up. God is able. This is what faith does. So when God speaks, we walk because we truly believe that God is able. So this week, I've been asking myself over and over and over again, Gabe, do you actually believe that God is able? Is your, this is so cliche, just forgive me, is, I don't even want to say it now, is your yes on the table, there's the cliche, because that's what it looks like. If we truly believe God is able, the moment we hear the voice of God, we walk because God is able. The moment we hear the, the leaning of God to do this, don't do this, we go, all right, our guest on the table, because we believe you're able. Even it's so counterculture to how the world would operate. Even if it makes no financial sense, it knows, makes no logical sense, it makes no relational sense, if our yes is on the table, God speaks, we know that God can, is able to outline all of those things, to fix all of those issues, to make our path straight. But we have to wrestle with, we have to consider, as Abraham did, is God able? Because we have another option. And we see this in Matthew 14, the story of Peter walking on water. Matthew 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? The opposite of faith is doubt. The opposite of God is able is God cannot. So, so I want us, to, I want us to, to take this middle ground out. Because, but most of us, we kind of like, oh, everything's on a spectrum, it's on a sliding scale. Like, like, I believe God is able, but I just struggle with that. Like, can, can we just call a spade a spade? No, you don't. You, you either believe God is able or we don't. There, there's no middle ground here. And if we don't believe God is able, the best thing for us is to admit that. The best thing for us is to say, God, I, I don't. Give me faith because in this moment, I don't see it. In this faith, I don't understand it. And the best thing for us is to admit that so that we can earnestly pray for God to give us more faith. That's a better spot to be in. I would rather you walk over on this side and say, I, I don't. I don't believe it. I don't see it. But I'm earnestly going to pray for God to give me more faith than to hang out in this middle ground and go, no, I believe God is able, just not on this one thing. I believe God is able, but if he knew the circumstances of this situation, even God would say, oh, bro, I can't fix that. Right? That, that's what we're saying. That's what we're walking into. And we see the example of Peter why do we say God can't? It's because we see the wind, and we're afraid. We see the storm, we see the waves, and we're afraid. So we have to wrestle with this. Is God able? Is he able to fix a broken family? Is he able to save someone? Is he able to provide for us financially? Is he able to save our marriage? Is he able to bring revival within Delonica? Is he able to fill in the blank? And here's what I would just encourage all of us to wrestle with. What is that area of life where you think God is not able? And we pray earnestly for God to change that, to give us more faith so that we can have instant obedience to walk after him. I read this quote this week that I think describes this in-between that most of us probably live in, me included. Those who believe that they believe in God, those who believe that they believe in God, but without passion in their hearts, without anguish in their mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the idea of God, not God himself. What the author is getting at, if you're not struggling to step out in faith, you probably don't actually believe in God. Because God's going to lead you. He's going to call you into some hard things. He's going to ask you to step out in faith. And you have to wrestle with, you have to consider, is God able? But for Abraham, he was able to look back. He was able to look back at all the things that God had already provided for him, all the things that God had already done for him, and from that he was able to consider, yes, God is able. And so for us this morning, let us look back, for those that are believers, let us consider what God has already done for us, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, he saved sinners like us. That through the blood of his son sending him to die, 
not sparing him like Isaac, but actually murdering his son for our sins, saved us. He rescued us so that we could be made right with him. Now, here's the question. If God is able there to rescue us from our sins, if God can change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, if God can put a new heart in me, give me the faith to believe. If God is able to do that, what can he not do? If God can save sinners like us, God can do anything. That's the beauty of the gospel. If God can rescue us, if God can redeem us, what can God not do? So church, do you believe God is able? Have we considered? Is our mind made up that the promises of God are true and therefore whatever he asked me to do, I'm walking and I'm stepping in instant obedience today. Is God able? And let us wrestle with that because this is what he's asked us to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word as an encouragement to our hearts this morning. We thank you for the stories that you share, the testing of Abraham's faith, and what that means for us today. Father, we see and understand that the faith that you had given Abraham, he exercised and worked on and grew for a century. But this was no first event of the testing of Abraham. This had been going on for a century. And so when you asked him to do the hardest thing he'd ever had to do, his yes was on the table. Instant obedience took over. Because his logical conclusion was, God, you promised me a son. You promised me a nation. So you're going to bring him back from the dead. So for us this morning, is our logical conclusion ending with us? Is our no on the table because we think we know better than you, Father? That we think you are not able, but I am. I can fix this situation. I know what's best. And Father, we know that in the midst of the test, things become very disorienting. That the waves are rocking, that the wind is blowing, that the thundering is is roaring, and we are become so disoriented that all we know to do is try to take control of the situation. But Father, let us repent of that sin, because that is an act of confession that we don't think you're able So, Father, when you walk us through these seasons of testing, let us know that they're going to be difficult. Let us know that scripturally we understand they're going to be probably the hardest seasons of our life. But also let us face them with joy because it's growing endurance in us. But so you count us worthy enough to suffer for your name because our faith is being developed, it's being grown And none of this is for our own name, our own renown, our own glory, but it's only for you, Father, that we could reflect, we could be so counterculture by following you in faith that the world stops and takes notice. 
So God, I just want to stop for a moment and, and pray for those in this congregation that are in the test right now. That with the waves and the wind and the thunder and the lightning, they don't know which way is up. God, would you please give them faith to say that you are able. I pray for those that are coming out of a really difficult season of testing. Father, I pray that now things have quieted out, that they would be resolute in their considering that you are able. That the faith that you have given us is now endured, it's now grown, it's now strengthened, and our yes is on the table for whatever is next. And I pray for those that are about to walk into the season of testing. God, would you prepare their hearts now? Would you grant them more faith to believe that you are able? Father, because that's all we have. If we don't have you, we have nothing. So let us stop. Let us consider. Let us believe that you are able. There's nothing you cannot do. Everything is yours. That with open handed we give it all back. Because we know that you're able. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for making a way for us to be reconciled to you when there was no way. And if you can accomplish that on our behalf, what can you not do? Father, we believe, we believe you are able. Would you help us with our unbelief? It's your name we pray. Amen.